Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome everyone to New Books Network. I'm Jadam Salongkamer, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Professor David Constant to talk about his book, The Origin of Sin. Greece and Rome, Early Judaism and Christianity. Now, I think this book is a very interesting and important work. This has four chapters and each chapter delves very deep into the subject matter that is the Greco-Roman world, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament and the church fathers and the rabbis. So uh, this is this book is a very in-depth discussion on all these uh, topics and <clears throat> and also specifically on the very idea of uh, sin itself. So I believe that the listeners will uh, love this conversation, but also at the same time will learn um, a lot from this uh, conversation. So let me straight away go to the author himself, that is uh, Professor David Constant, and ask um, him the initial question, that is, uh, tell me something about yourself. Yeah. Well, um, I will give you a little bit of background. I did my undergraduate work in mathematics, and I changed to ancient Greek and Roman uh, life uh, only late in my career, but I have been doing that now for 60 years, so I'm familiar with the territory. Um, I have, have always had an interest in the social background to literature. For me, the study of literature uh, and of antiquity, classical antiquity generally, is a branch of anthropology. Just as we think of myths as reflecting the not just good storytelling, which they are, but also tell you something about the values and problems of a culture, so too does their literature, which can be regarded as a kind of written form of myth. Uh, storytelling, whether it's historical or any other sort, even philosophy. So I look at what the concepts are. Um, I wrote a book called Greek Comedy and Ideology, where I sought to find the way in which the ideology of the Greeks found expression in their comedy. And also not just formal ideas, but the conflicts, the unresolved issues of the culture that get expressed in literature. Well, from there, I've studied uh, from the beginning uh, both philosophy and, uh, and literary works uh, side by side. Uh, but at a certain point, I got interested in... Um, larger thematic questions. So I wrote a book on friendship. I wrote another book on pity and the way it was understood in the ancient world and came to realize that their way of regarding uh, even such fundamental questions as the emotions, something like anger, something like uh, pity, like shame, might not be exactly the way we see it using our English vocabulary today. And that resulted in a larger book called The Emotions of the Ancient Greeks, where I looked at, I always took as my starting point Aristotle, but then looked at the way, whether the extent to which Aristotle's concepts were um, uh, made visible in literary works like drama. To give just an example, to make this less abstract, 
uh, I was struck by the fact that Aristotle said, you cannot be angry at someone if you're afraid of that person. And that struck me as very odd. Most people I would ask, of course you can be angry at someone you're afraid of. In fact, you're very likely to be angry at someone you're afraid of. So why would Aristotle think differently? And here, I think something of my own mathematical background came in. I said, let's think of it differently. What if Aristotle means something different by anger or his word for anger than we do? And what if, if we look at the way he thinks of anger, this strange proposition that you can't be angry at someone if you're afraid of the person would make perfect sense. And in fact, it did. When I looked at how he defined anger, I realized he was thinking of anger differently than the way we do. And so, looking at the terms very carefully, I began to realize that not all cultures think of things in the same way. Uh, uh, speaking now with a person in um, this wonderful cross-cultural experience where I happen to be in Spain at the moment and you're in India, uh, I think of uh, Indian uh, tradition on emotion, which is extremely rich. Uh, let me just mention as an aside that in November, I'm going to be uh, organizing, I have organized a, uh, a little conference. It'll be on, on video uh, online so people can join in uh, called Before Emotion. How were emotions conceived in different early cultures? And there we will have experts in Greek and Latin, yes, but also Chinese, Arabic, ancient Hebrew, and classical Sanskrit. Uh, so there will be this question, and, and uh, I already have a version of the Sanskrit paper. It's fascinating in um, showing how ancient Greek, uh, Sanskrit terms, like ancient Greek and Roman terms, do not map perfectly well onto modern terms, and we should be aware of the differences. Well, that's all kind of a long background to the fact that I continued this work by looking at some other concepts, for example, forgiveness. Did the ancients have a notion of forgiving that is similar to the one that we think of forgiving today? Uh, I was working together with a colleague from philosophy who was writing a book on forgiveness, and it occurred to me as I read his work and other works that the ancients, ancient Greeks and Romans, didn't really have a concept that closely corresponded to our own. And so I wrote a book called Before Forgiveness, The Origins of a Moral Idea. And this is taking us very close to sin, because forgiveness and sin is going to turn out are very closely related. So when I looked at ancient forgiveness, I asked two questions. I said one or two parts to a definition. The first one was, you only forgive somebody if they have done something wrong. We never say, you never hurt me in any way and I forgive you. Make it make a lot of sense. And also, we forgive people when they apologize. When they say, I really was mistaken. I, was, I did something out of um, a wrong perception of things. And now I've changed. And now I understand better. And I'm, in some sense, I'm a different person. And that's not the way the ancient Greeks looked at it. They use words that today in modern Greek mean forgive. But for them, it was more limited idea. It was more similar. So Aristotle says, we only forgive things that are done involuntarily. Well, but if something's done involuntarily for us, you don't have to forgive it. It was not an error in the first place. So obviously Aristotle by forgiveness means something like excusing, 
uh, which is different. Uh, and I argued that forgiveness really begins in the Hebrew Bible and is developed in the Christian Bible, and that in both contexts, originally in Hebrew, um, it is primarily God who forgives. Uh, there is a word for forgiveness in Hebrew, occurs in the Hebrew Bible about 30 or 40 times, and the only subject of that verb, the only one who does the forgiving, only one is God. So what does God forgive? Well, God forgives sins. And here you have the connection. Now we've finally arrived at the point of departure, which is sins. And that, uh, from there, I also wrote something on remorse, because you feel remorse for sins. Also, once I was involved with forgiveness, with remorse, uh, a um, very important German encyclopedia called the Royal Encyclopedia of Ancient Greece, uh, of ancient, of classical world and Christianity, early Christianity, asked me to write an article on sin. And I did. And I realized that this was a technical article for a German publication, very condensed, and it would be a good idea to write a more accessible book to a larger public, uh, write it in English, expand the ideas, include all the examples, um, and not in such abbreviated form. And that's the origin of the book. Yeah, I mean, the kind of um, studies that you did on the affective aspect of human being is quite interesting. And as to how you have come to develop uh, this uh, this book itself, it's also very fascinating in that sense. So uh, that's quite intriguing. And then your scholarship and your work shows the diversity of understanding of the culture and also at the same time the, their language and all of those aspects. So I think that, that that aspect is really quite interesting. So let's just straight away move into the contents of the book uh, because I think uh, you have explained as to how you uh, have come to write this book and how you have come to be interested in the idea of sin itself. So let's just go straight into the contents of the book. And firstly, you discuss about the Greco-Roman world and the understanding of uh, what um, sin is in relation to God. So uh, let me just pose a general question in regard to this very um, chapter. That is like, what was the uh, idea of sin in the classical world in that sense? Well, here we have an issue, because when in English we use the word sin, well, it has a religious connotation. For example, if you go to court for having committed a crime, you will never hear the word sin. You committed a crime, you committed an offense, you committed a wrong, it was wrongdoing, you um, violated the law, there are many ways to talk about um, a crime or an action that um, uh, is considered wrong by a civil society, but we don't call it a sin. So my question originally began, what is a sin? Is it, does every culture have such a term that distinguishes a special class of wrongful deeds with a special word like that? Or is this a phenomenon specific to the Judeo-Christian Muslim world, the so-called Abrahamic religions, these monotheisms which start with, which have a very direct lineage. Well, so that was the question I posed. Is it everywhere? Uh, I knew that in French, in German, in um, 
uh, Italian and Spanish, there was a special word for sin. But those were all cultures deeply influenced uh, by uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. I also knew there was a special word for sin in Arabic. Uh, and so, um, which is a language I studied at one point. So I knew that in the Muslim tradition too, uh, to this day, I still don't really know whether there is a similar concept in, um, let's say, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, languages which I do not have a sufficient command of to be able to be sure whether there is one term. So when you go to court, in a court that is conducted in those languages, there would be two terms, one of which had a particular religious association, also wouldn't be used. So that was the question I started with. Um, sin must have some kind of special meaning. Well, what is it? So I looked up dictionaries and uh, various books, and uh, they gave some definitions. Uh, they usually said something like, sin is a violation of a divine law. And then they would give a second definition, which was any wrongdoing or any bad thing. And I knew that because you can informally, not in the law court, you can informally say, oh, that's a sin, uh, when you're speaking about many things that are wrong, even sometimes very mild things. Um, we can say that uh, incest, uh, sleeping with the same family is a sin. But um, if we just mean it's against the law, we might not call it a sin. But if we're calling it a sin, what do we mean? And so the dictionary definitions, the most, more primary definitions, always said a violation of divine law. Well, then I thought if that's true, uh, then there were similar, very similar ideas in ancient Greece and Rome because they knew about divine laws too. Um, there were some very famous passages, above all one in a play by Sophocles, the Antigone, in which this distinction came out extremely clearly. Antigone uh, is, um, has two brothers uh, one who died in a duel with each other. One was defending his home city and the other was attacking it. The king, who is her uncle, of the home city has a hero's burial or the brother who was defending the city, but will not allow the brother who was attacking the city to be buried at all. And Antigone, the daughter, the young lady, who is the sister of both of these brothers, says this can't be right. It is a divine, unwritten law laid down by the gods that you must give burial, especially to family. And so she violates the law of the king, and the king sentences her to death. So she has very clearly stated there are decrees by human beings, she says. Those decrees don't count as far as I'm concerned when it's a matter of uh, divine law that I would be violating. And so I looked around, how many examples are there of this tension between divine law and human law? And there were other examples. There's one in a writer called Xenophon, which he's, he's writing Socratic dialogues, and he has Socrates say that uh, human laws can be invaded. You can get away with them, but divine laws are always punished. So he has a distinction, and he tells us what some of those laws are. Well, then, if that's the case, then there's two possibilities. Either sin is a very general concept, 
and we don't have to make it specific to the Judeo-Christian tradition, or maybe sin really isn't quite so general a term, even in the Bible. Why don't I take a look and see exactly what sin means in the Bible? So the first chapter was looking for all of these examples of law, of divine law, and the violation of divine law, as opposed to human law, where there was a sharp difference. Okay, I knew the gods punished many things, so I could tell that, I could see that you could oppose them. So now let's look at the Bible and see what's going on there. And that's what led to the second chapter. <laughs> so you've asked me about the first. If you like, I can go on to the second, or I can give you an opportunity to pose another question here. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, it'll be good if you can uh, go to the second chapter. Now, uh, second chapter, you talk about the Hebrew Bible, the, and that is the, what uh, generally people call as the Old Testament. And I think in this chapter, you also uh, talk strongly about the distinction of uh, their gods and the foreign gods and, you know, distinction of us and the other and all of those aspects. So I think uh, I give the privilege to you to go into uh, this Hebrew Bible, yeah, understanding of sin. Excellent. Okay, yes. I didn't want to... Uh, deny you the opportunity to organize some of the conversation. The, um, well then, obviously there are divine commandments in the Hebrew Bible. Obviously. They are, God gives ten commandments, but he gives other things. He starts out by telling Adam and Eve, you shall not eat from the tree of knowledge. So there are things that God says, and of course we know that Eve gives Adam the apple and they eat of the apple and this causes great problems for forever because they are banished from the Garden of Eden. But there are many other laws. The Greek and the Hebrew Bible is filled with laws that you can violate. So how is this different if it is different from um, the Greeks? Well, I, here I did what philologists do. Philology literally, literally means a love of words. And I looked at many of the words that were used for bad things. Just in English, we have evil, which again, you don't usually hear in a law court. We have sin, we have evil, we have wickedness, we have iniquity, a fancier old-fashioned word for doing something wrong. We have wrongdoing, we have error, we have offense, and uh, many others. And I knew Greek had them too, and I discovered that Hebrew had a great variety of words too. Well, what if one word had a special restricted meaning? So I looked at the word, which is based on the root hata, which um, most commonly is used to mean sin. Uh, all the dictionaries say this is the most frequent word that means sin. And some of the more literal Bibles will translate this as sin, but other words as evil, wrongdoing, and so on. Well, what I found out was that this word has a narrower sense than one would think. So, for example, it's never applied to what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the words that I'm mentioning for sin is not applied to them. Now, why might that be the case? Well, there are many reasons, and what I'm about to say is very speculative. But the tree of knowledge from which they eat 
is specifically knowledge of good and evil. They eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which must mean that before they knew what good and evil was, before they ate the apple, they didn't know what good and evil was. Well, if they don't know what good and evil is, how could they sin? Of course, they disobeyed a commandment. That much is clear. They did. Um, they did wrong. But they did wrong in a pre-moral way. And so I compared them to children. If I tell a child, don't run out in the street, and the child disobeys, of course, I know why I want to protect the child. I may, I was very, very strongly discipline a child so that it doesn't run carelessly into a street where there are cars. But I wouldn't say the child committed a sin. It disobeyed, which is different. Even a dog can disobey when they understand instructions. So there may be, maybe there was some consciousness in the Bible of sin as having a more restricted sense than either doing something wrong or disobeying God. Maybe there was more to it. And as I looked more carefully, I found that sin was applied above all in cases where there was a violation of the covenant between the Israeli people and their God. Now, this takes us, this requires a bit of history because the Jews, the Jewish people, the Israelites don't have the covenant from the beginning. They only have the covenant when Moses gives them the Ten Commandments and they make the covenant with God. So earlier uses of the word might be a little bit more flexible. But once you have the covenant, then the crucial, crucial commandment is you must not worship other gods before me. Or, and it's interesting because it doesn't say at all, it says before me, and you must not chase after foreign gods. And interestingly, of all the Ten Commandments, that's the only one that's given the word sin. Now that was struck me too. So, but then, if this were true, a very strange consequence occurs. Because if it's true that a sin is to violate the covenant by chasing after foreign gods, then only people who have a covenant can sin. This would mean that the Israeli people can sin, but the other people can't. And then that makes sense because, of course, if, if non-Israelites are worshiping other gods, they're not foreign. They're not foreign to them. They're their own gods. And I found passages where it was okay to worship foreign gods as long as you included Jehovah. Included, if you were non-Israeli. If you were Israeli, then it was completely different. Then worship of foreign gods, any god other than Jehovah, was clearly condemned. And what's more, the language of sin was applied again and again to this kind of violation. So could it be that the Hebrew Bible, among all its different traditions and strands and editions and, you know, along its whole long history, preserved a curious, very rich sense that there was a certain kind of behavior that was sinful and it wasn't just any wrongdoing and not even any wrongdoing of 
any violation of God's commandment. But it was this very specific thing. And so that's what I discovered, that yes, there seems to be, with a few minor exceptions, this distinction between sin and other forms of wrongdoing, evil, badness, wickedness. Now, that would mean that the word for sin is not applied to things like murder, incest, adultery, all those terrible things, which are bad. There's no question that they're bad, but they're not sins in this very narrow sense. What's more, these sins of turning away from the covenant, this particular sin, gives rise to what we might call a mini-story, a narrative, or some people, sometimes I use the word, a script. It's not an act alone in itself, because you have a covenant, you have the people agreeing to the covenant, and then violating it. And then what happens? Typically, what happens is God punishes them. They lose a war, they're sent into exile, they suffer for doing wrong. As a result of this, they repent. They recognize their evil, and they beg for forgiveness. And here you see where my themes of remorse and forgiveness enter in. And then they beg God to forgive, and God either can, and he often does, or he does not. He's not constrained. Nothing forces God to forgive. But he looks into the heart to see if the repentance is sincere. And if it is, then he forgives. So then I had another, you might say, another tool to work with. Not only did I see sin in connection with a violation of the covenant, but I also saw it as having a particular connection to repentance and forgiveness. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness. So I had two things to look for. One, which terms in Hebrew were most closely associated with repentance and forgiveness? And which terms were most closely associated with violation of the covenant by chasing after foreign gods? And they coincided. They basically coincided. So I came up with the idea that in the Hebrew Bible, there was a clear use of a particular term that had this special array of meanings, these connotations uh, associated with it. And I said, if we regard this as sin, then indeed it is unique to the Hebrew Bible because you do not find any such thing in Greco-Roman tradition. It is not there. There is no structure. There is no mini-narrative where you beg the gods for pity by showing that you have repented and ask for forgiveness and return to the God that you had a covenant with. There's nothing like that in the Greek and Roman world. So yes, sin turns out to be something specific to uh, the Hebrew Bible. So that was chapter two. Yeah, and I also wanted to know about the connection between uh, sacrifice and rituals and then, you know, um, I mean, the remission for sins through sacrifice and rituals and all. Uh, how is it connected in the Hebrew Bible? That's a very good um, question because in the Hebrew Bible, they are sometimes, sacrifices are sometimes called sin offerings. And that word for sin or the root for sin turns up there. 
And there was a tricky problem because those sin offerings could very often be for involuntary offenses. An example, you are, um, you are in an unclean condition and you walk into a holy space, but you don't know. It's an accident. Uh, you've done something wrong, you have, it's a ritual transgression. And these exist in Greek and Roman culture too. So how do you atone for these? Do you repent? No. Do you have the structure of forgiveness after confession and remorse? No. What you do is you take a chicken, a bull, a sheep, and you sacrifice them. In other words, it's a ritual act to eliminate the pollution. And so I discovered that on occasion, on occasion, some of the sin vocabulary could be associated with very specific types of accidental, usually accidental, violation of ritual laws, which were atoned for, not by forgiveness, but by a ritual sacrificial practice. And that meaning I had to put in brackets because that obviously was in a different category. Um, so sacrifices of that sort. So for example, when you have the Jews worshiping um, foreign gods, and then God punishes them, and then they repent, you don't have sacrifices. That's not what they do. They have to show a change of heart. So it's one thing to have a sacrifice for an unintended uh, ritual violation, and yes, in the early texts, early especially the Pentateuch, the five, you, know, you do get that business of sin uh, uh, um, or guilt offerings. But um, I think they occupied a very special space. They were understood to do so. And so there'd be two types of offenses. Ritual offenses, very often unintended. That could be intended, but uh, not accidental entirely. But very often unintended. They were redeemed by sacrifice. And then there were genuine uh, offenses against the covenant by chasing after foreign gods. These could only be redeemed by confession, repentance, and the hope for forgiveness. And that was the structure of the sin, the sin pattern. Yeah, that's quite interesting. We have come from the divine law and human law, discussion of divine law and human law, do the covenant where we talk about confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Now, the next chapter is on the New Testament, that is the Jesus' sense of sin. And I think um, yeah, this is a very uh, interesting chapter in the sense of how, you know, minutely you go into the uh, biblical passages and try to, you know, dissect all, all of those uh, perspective and aspects and all from the context itself. So uh, that aspect is something which is very interesting. So, uh, and that is where also, I mean, the kind of argument that comes out in the book, uh, that is where you talk about the uniqueness of the um, uh, the Bible in terms of asserting what sin is, comes out in terms of understanding what uh, Jesus, uh, and how Jesus understood sin to be. So uh, what is the understanding of uh, sin in New Testament? Well, that's the next step, and you're absolutely right. Here we have, and it's a very complex case, the New Testament, as we have it, is in Greek. So, the word for sin is going to be a Greek word, and it is. It's hamartia, and it's a word that's used in Greek very often, and in Greek it typically means a mistake or a failure to um, 
achieve a point. It can be used for missing a target, uh, something like that, but it can also be used for an error. And in, Hebrew, in, in, in the Greek Bible, however, I wanted to know whether that word had, again, a special meaning as opposed to many other words that mean a bad thing, a terrible thing, and so on. So I looked and tried to follow that term and restrict myself to it. And it was made a little bit easier because um, there are a few places in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of other kinds of offense, where he speaks of things like adultery and so on. And uh, when he does speak of them, he doesn't call them sins. He calls them terrible things, bad things, evil things. But he doesn't use that special word for sin. Now, that could be an accident. But maybe there was something more going on. Jesus was not speaking Greek. Jesus was speaking Aramaic, a language very similar to Hebrew. Um, and he had in the back of his mind the Hebrew tradition. Uh, he may have known Greek. Uh, he may have understood Greek from the context. He, was, he may have known Latin, for all I know. But, um, but the language in which he was communicating was Hebrew. And so he would be using Hebrew words in this context, which the gospel writers had either themselves or somebody before them had rendered into Greek. So we're dealing with a very complex situation here. Still in all, looking at the Hebrew through the Greek, knowing that we are, we've got on the one hand a Greek language, and on the other hand we have a Hebrew heritage, a Hebrew tradition lying behind that Greek language. What's going on? And what I found was this that Jesus uses the language of hamartia, the language of sin, in contexts that have to do with belief in him. That is to say, it's very closely connected with belief. But belief in a very particular sense. It's not what we call faith today. It's more narrow. It's a word that he still has Greek connotations. It means trusting someone. Uh, it's not faith in propositions. For example, we say, I believe that uh, all souls who are evil will go to hell. It's not that. It's not belief, I believe that. It's I believe in you. And also, it's not blind faith. It's not I believe only where reason leaves off. No, no, no. It's I have good reason to be confident in something. I regard something as trustworthy. So Jesus says um, he very often associates sin with not believing in him, but believing in him in what way? Well, here's what I wanted to find out. And it seems it very often has to do with believing in his miraculous abilities. So when a blind man comes up to Jesus and says, um, uh, can you cure me? Jesus says to him, and this is a very strong passage, do you believe that I can? And the man says, yes, I do, Lord. And Jesus says, your belief, your faith, has, is, what, is the reason that I will cure you. Now that is very interesting. What faith? the faith that he can do it. 
So then it seemed to me that I was now making sense of all of Jesus' miracles. What are the miracles designed to do? The miracles are designed to show in the gospel telling that Jesus can do many things that ordinary human beings cannot do. When human beings pretend to do them, they are fake. When Jesus does them, they are real evidence of his divinity. Uh, if you didn't see those proofs, you would not have reason to believe. And so, when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, before I came, they had no sin, I took him very seriously at his word. Not they didn't have this sin, not they didn't have some sin. That's not what he says. He says, before I came, they had no sin. In other words, before they saw my miracles, they had no basis for belief. So he has changed the meaning of sin. From now on, sin is going to mean a change of heart whereby you realize that something very new has happened in the world. God, in, sin, in, in a particular form, has manifested himself on earth in a human form, in a strictly human form. He's human. He can die. He can suffer. He can cry, as he does when Lazarus uh, dies. He can, but he can not only cry, he can resurrect the dead. He can cure blindness. He can cure lameness. He can tell a man, get up and walk. And the man will get up and walk. And he can do one more thing. He can forgive sins. <clears throat> and here I looked very closely at the famous passage told in several Gospels, in all of them, of the paralytic man whose friends bring him to Jesus' house, where Jesus is staying. <clears throat> and in one of the versions, the house is so crowded with people waiting outside to be healed, because Jesus is famous as a miracle worker, that they have to lift him up and dig a hole in the roof and drop him in, and they do. And Jesus says to the man, get up and walk, and then he adds, your sins are forgiven. And the rabbis all around him are shocked. Who are you to forgive sins? Their point is, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus answers, I am the son of man. I can do it because of who I am. That's very, very special. So now we have something peculiar. We have a sin narrative again. We have forgiveness of sins. But now it's not a violation of the covenant. Because it's a different thing altogether. It is realizing that the covenant has been replaced. The old law has been replaced by a new phenomenon, I would call it, which is that God has manifested himself on earth, has done these miracles, and now you have the choice. You can recognize and believe and trust in what he's done, in which case your sins are forgiven, which is the sin of not believing, so it comes automatically, or you can refuse to believe, and then you're in a sinful state. And so that, again, has no parallel in Greek and Roman environment. 
It's a completely different phenomenon. Uh, it leads us to a wholly new idea of what sin is, a wholly new idea of faith, a wholly new... It changes the meaning of repentance because people don't repent, they convert. They change their vision and go toward Jesus. And so one of the things I noticed, and you know, it never occurred to me before, in the Gospels, no one ever confesses. No one confesses to anything. Gospels have no confession. They have, you recognize, you, there's no sin to confess to because Jesus isn't interested in your old sins. He is interested in, have you recognized the new reality? Have you recognized that I am God's son and I am here now and you can look upon me and see me? And you can see what I have done. So this is a very new idea. No confession, no repentance. Think about it. Who repents? Does the man, the paralytic man repent? Does the blind man repent? In fact, Jesus says that um, blindness has nothing to do with sins. He tells about a little girl who was blind, I think, from birth. And he says, you know, neither she nor her parents have sinned. Uh, we have a famous parable in John of an adulterous woman. Well, she doesn't confess. She doesn't repent. Jesus just says, don't do it again. He, he's not interested in your past. He's not interested in the things you've done wrong. He's interested in the future. Will you recognize what has happened, that God's Son has come onto earth? And this is why I think the Gospels were written, because... We need to remember who he is and what he did. Because if we don't know that, we, there's, we'll be like the ones before he came. And so that was my vision of my interpretation of that book. Yeah, um, I mean, that's something uh, which is fascinating to me personally also. In that sense, um, I mean, from the time that I've read the Bible, I've always uh, been fascinated by the figure of Jesus. Not only the figure of Jesus, but then how the Bible portrays uh, different aspects of our life itself. So I think uh, the way you are putting it and how, you know, Jesus comes in and then, you know, revolutionize this idea in the Greco-Roman world of this very idea of sin is something uh, quite fascinating to me. And I think you bring this aspect out very beautifully in your book and at the same time as how you explain it. Now let's move on to the uh, last chapter. And I think that is this is also something quite interesting aspect of Christianity in the sense where the, the involvement of the Josh fathers and the rabbi comes in and then uh, there, I mean, they give a lot of time uh, and their resources into thinking about these different aspects and try to develop uh, for try to develop this further, and that is why you kind of uh, you know the subheading of this chapter is also the transformation of sin. Uh, so um, can you you know elaborate something more on the church fathers and the rabbis and their understanding of sin and how this diverse understanding of sin developed in Christianity? Yeah. Well, uh, here I had to reflect that, of course, um, we today don't see the words for sin either in the Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament as having this very special meaning. We think of it as just doing something wrong or at least violating God's laws. Well, when did that start? When did we start thinking of sin in this more general way? 
And when I look back at the church fathers and the rabbis, it seemed to me that they were already changing, broadening the meaning of sin. They were already using the same vocabulary, but in a more general way. So in Latin, the word for sin is peccatum. It can mean just wrongdoing in classical Latin. But Augustine, a great saint of the Catholic Church, very interested in sin, was referring to sin very broadly as violating any of the commandments. And he's based it on the Bible. And so he would quote passages from the Bible. And I would look back at the Greek, which Augustine wasn't reading. He was reading the Latin translation. Um, but I look at the Greek, and the Greek word for sin wasn't there. Yes, they were terrible things. Yes, they were things you shouldn't do. But they weren't called sins. They were called just bad things. And I said, maybe... The Latin translations, the tendency that we still have. If you look at some of the recent translations of the Bible, not the King James one into English, because that's very literal, but the recent ones, they will translate the same Greek or, Latin or Hebrew word differently. So sometimes the same word is called, sometimes translated as sin, sometimes translated as wickedness. And at the same time, they'll take two, three, four different words in Greek or in Hebrew, and they'll translate them as sin. Well, if you do that, then, of course, you won't see the distinction. Because it'll all get mixed together. And I think that's what Augustine was doing. He was working with a Bible that was already making those transitions. And so he, um, I think also, by the time of Augustine, by the time of a, an official church, which was legislating behavior, uh, they were no longer exclusively interested in whether or not you believed in Jesus' miracles. They were now had a, had a larger purpose. They were a mini government. They were telling people how to behave. They were telling them whether to do right or do wrong. They were telling them that if they did wrong, they would suffer forever. If they did right, they would be saved forever. They were a combination of threats and rewards that were designed to keep people behaving properly. And in that context, uh, what they needed was a very different idea of sin. They needed to understand that if you didn't believe in Jesus, if you did wrong things, it was as good as not believing. Jesus himself wasn't using that term so widely, but later the church fathers came to do it more and more. Uh, out of different interests, out of different needs, um, they were taking for granted that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't think their flock, their congregations, needed to be proved. This needed to be proved to them. They took it for granted, and now they were using sin in a more general way. And we are naturally, we have inherited the view of the church fathers, but I was claiming, and the rabbis, it was a similar event, evolution. I was claiming in the book that these were precisely an evolution of the terminology for sin and didn't correspond to the more narrow way that it was being used either in the Hebrew Bible or in a different way in the New Testament. So that was the end of the story. We came from um, a distinction between the Greek and Roman view mm -hmm. and the Hebrew or the Christian view. 
Those weren't the same, but they were different from the Greek and Roman view. Um, then we came to a further evolution whereby the term lost its specificity and became to cover a wide range of offenses. But if it did, then the difference between Greeks and Romans and the Hebrews and the Christians were no longer valid because you could find that kind of offense on both places. So the book came round to, to this kind of conclusion. Yes, yes. And one of the discussion here in this chapter is also about, um, that got me also, was about the original sin. So uh, where does this idea come from and you know what is this idea and how does it develop? Yeah. yeah. This is a very complicated, as of course you know, and I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this podcast will know, is a complicated question. It is almost always associated with a very specific passage in Paul's letter to the Romans, where um, uh, he seems to be speaking of an inherited sin. Uh, it doesn't figure very strongly in early Christian literature, and it's completely absent in Jewish literature. There's no such concept. Jew- Judaism has no concept of original sin. Um, in Christian thought, it's a very debated issue. Um, those who believe in original sin, some of them think that we are born in sin because it's in our genes. Ever since Adam committed this sin, which after all, as I've said, is not called a sin in the Hebrew Bible, but ever since he disobeyed, this disobedience got into his genetic material, we would say today, and it was transmitted to every human being afterward. So you're born in sin. Uh, That was Augustine's view. Others, and and what's more, once you're born in sin, there's no way out. The only way out is to repent, 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 confess, 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 which no one does in the Gospels, and hope that God will forgive you, not because of your merits, because you're in sin. Whatever you do, you're sinful, but because of his grace. And that's the only way you can be saved. And so this concept becomes extremely important. Now, others believe that what we inherited was not being born in a sinful state, but with a propensity to sin, with a tendency to sin, with a weakness in us that we inherited from Adam. But there was always the possibility that we might not. Um, In both cases, we are born, but especially in the case where it's part of your genetic material, where you're born in sin, then it's not a question of being more or less righteous. Yes, you hope that by being righteous, God will shed his grace on you. But who are the people who are most conscious of their sinful state? The most conscious in antiquity, the saints. The saints are the one who knows they're sinners. And they are more repentant, more filled with repentance. It sounds odd to us that the best people should be more full of repentance. But it's because they, they're the ones who most realize that they are sinners. Um, So sin isn't what you do. Sin is how you are. This is one of the concepts. Now, not everyone in antiquity held this view. And in particular, um, Augustine's great rival, Pelagius, held that that was not true, that uh, overcoming sin was within human willpower. You could do it. It might not be easy, but it was possible. And 
Augustine roundly, roundly attacked Pelagius. We only have his Pelagius writings through his opponents, but um, but there were others, tendencies that said that uh, there's nothing in the in the Bible that guarantees such a view. That says we must all be sinners, and that there is no room for us to be better or worse. Yes, we can be better or worse, but this will not affect our salvation. Because given that we are sinners, it is only God who can, uh, by his grace, over forgive that sin. Well, this is a very different meaning. Um, and I did go into that in the book. I looked into the ways in which this was um, this concept was developed. Uh, I don't think it was a necessary path for Christianity to take. There is a small corollary here because um, even if you believe that we are sinful, you could still believe that some of us are better and some of us worse, and some of us will still go to heaven and some of us will go to hell. And then if you believe that some of us will go to hell, will we all go there? Is anyone who is condemned to hell is going to be in hell forever? Or is there a way of getting out of hell? By what? By learning, by being punished, by repenting afterwards. Uh, we today think that there's purgatory, which is a kind of quasi-hell. So some go to purgatory and they can get out, but others go to the strict hell and they'll never get out. Well, purgatory is a concept that developed around Augustine's time. It's not earlier. So you have hell. And if even with purgatory, you have some people who are condemned forever. And this is a very harsh doctrine to be punished in the worst possible tortures forever and ever without any possibility of redemption. Is this a loving God who would do this? Is anything that a human being can do so bad as to deserve this disproportionate punishment? People in antiquity ask themselves this. And some of them answered, no, hell is not to torture, hell is to teach. Hell is to bring you to awareness. And if you are very bad, it can take a long time. But that's its function. And eventually everyone, even the devil, will be realized. And so when the world, when time is over, everyone will be redeemed. It's called today the universalist position. Uh, the world will go back to its pre-fall state. Uh, Origen, the great Origenes uh, thinker, believed this. Uh, he was His doctrine was condemned by the Western Church. But um, uh, Gregory of Nyssa believed this. Other saints believed it. And as you may know, a colleague of mine and I wrote a whole book on explaining how it's not a necessary interpretation of the Bible. And that many of the church fathers, in fact, did not, not just the one, these one I mentioned, but many others, did not believe in eternal damnation. Um, today, there's a whole movement to try to um, recognize that, that dimension of Christianity. So there's, there's a story of, of original sin, but also of eternal punishment. Yeah, um, that's... that's really interesting that you expanded very nicely and made this one uh, very much clear from your experience and from your uh, scholarship that's quite interesting and also at the same time uh, the discussion on the chapters were very to the point and also you know the your thesis 
came out came out very f- beautifully in that sense. So, is there anything that I've missed out or that I have not emphasized that you want to emphasize from the book more? No, I think you have been very complete and exhaustive. You've given me a wonderful opportunity. I am uh, fascinated, as as you can tell. Uh, with uh, Indian culture. I've only been to India once in my life. It was an extraordinary experience many years ago. I have uh, not yet had occasion to return, but I'm looking forward to it. And uh, and it's a very welcome opportunity to communicate with you. I'm grateful for your taking the initiative. Yeah, that's really true. So is there any other interesting project currently that you're working on? Well, in I'm working on a whole bunch of things. On I just was at a conference on revenge, um, and how to understand it, and I look at it in Greek and Roman terms, uh, various others. The one maybe the most closest, the closest is a, a book project. Uh, we're taking um, uh, Greek stories of the life of Saint Barbara, who was a martyr in the Christian tradition. Um, she was killed by her father, in fact, and. Um, uh, there are many versions of it, her life, that are early, um, that have never been, not only not translated, but never been edited there in manuscript. And so a young colleague and I together are editing a bunch of these lives, and we'll translate them, and we'll put notes in to explain the context. So that's probably the main project that I'm working on, most most closely related to this one. Yeah, that, quite interesting, quite interesting. So if anyone wants to reach out to you uh, regarding this book or any other work that you are doing, uh, how do they reach out to you? The easiest way is by email. Uh, I, As you are aware, I tend to answer email very quickly. And so um, and I um, am happy always to receive comments. And I will be, you know, if, if, if at all possible, I'll reply right away. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor David Constant, uh, for this wonderful conversation and for being here with me. I I will encourage the listeners to really go into this book and into this fascinating scholarship. And uh, more than uh, what Professor David Constant has said, even though he has put this one very beautifully uh, in his words, but also when you read the book, uh, I think the book will be again much more richer and uh, the book goes very in-depth into discussing all the minute details. So I would encourage listeners to get hold of the book and then go through the book. And thank you, Professor David Gostan, for being here and have a nice time ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we see. Bye.